Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Our chapter 9, we're just going to pick up where we left off last week. Mark 9, verses 30 to 41. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. Uh, This passage will appear on page 493, Mark chapter 9. It is said to be the true key to success, the foundation of all virtues, the first step in being a truly great person, the thing that makes us real and genuine, and something that the world needs a lot more of. What am I talking about? All of these things I have just said to you are quotes from different people, famous people actually, in pop culture and athletics. The thing that they're all speaking about is humility. Humility. Uh, St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, was once asked, he's very famously responded on this topic, he was asked, what is the first thing in religion? What's the most important thing in religion? And he said, well, first it's humility, and second it's humility, and third it's humility. Well, we are again continuing this series on Mark, and we have reached this passage here in Mark chapter 9, and as I have been... um, explaining to you and and repeating actually multiple times that Mark is divided into two halves, right? The first half of Mark is about Jesus' identity, and the second half of Mark is about Jesus' mission. And chapter 9 right here is kind of a transitionary chapter between those two halves. First half of Mark, who Jesus is. Second half of Mark, what Jesus has come to do. And chapter 9 is moving us from that first half to the second half. So that's the major theme of Mark, who Jesus is, what He came to do. But there's a secondary theme in Mark, and that is the theme of discipleship, what it is to live as a disciple of Jesus. And if someone were to ask, what is the most important thing in discipleship, I think I would answer similarly to St. Augustine, first humility, second humility, and third humility. So kids who just sat down, if you want to write down something that this sermon is about, humility. Write that down. We'd love to see that on your papers when you come see me for your stickers later. That's what we are talking about here this morning. What is humility, you might ask? Well, a number of different ways to define it. I'm going to uh, refer to Paul Tripp here who defines it this way. Humility means knowing that as long as sin still lives in you, you will need to be rescued from you. Humility means you love serving more than you crave leading. Humility means owning your inability rather than boasting in your abilities. Humility means always being committed to listen and to learn. Humility is about being more motivated to serve than to be seen. Well, this passage we're looking at here, verses 30 to 41, they might seem like unrelated incidents, 
But actually, this theme of humility can be traced through these verses 30 to 41, and so that's what we're considering today. So, if you're able to stand, please do so, and let me read the text to us today. Mark 9, starting with verse 30. It says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Holy Spirit, we ask, please give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things in your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Humility. Well, three things that I want to show you from this text about humility, three different kinds of humility, uh, we might say. And so the first thing we're going to consider here is personal humility in verses 33 to 37. So looking at verse 33, we see that Jesus and His disciples come to uh, Capernaum. And so uh, I like to kind of bring out the map every now and then just to kind of remind you of the geography here. So... um, You'll uh, notice up here we have the Sea of Galilee, and uh, you'll see Capernaum right here. Now, you might recognize that town name because it's come up many times in Mark. This has been kind of uh, Jesus' headquarters for ministry, actually. He's based a lot of His um, actions out of this place, keeps returning to this place. But um, what we've seen over the course of the book so far is just travels back and forth over the Sea of Galilee. Seen a lot of time in boats and seen some storms. Uh, this is where all of this is taking place. So we, we're, 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 what we've been learning about is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So that's this whole region. It's called Galilee. Uh, sometimes Jesus would cross and go to the Decapolis. You might remember that the Decapolis is populated mostly by Gentiles. So there were occasions when Jesus would do His ministry there, reaching Gentiles, but he'd come back here, and then he would do ministry among largely the Jews in Galilee. So this is all first half of the gospel of Mark. But like I've said, we're getting ready to enter the second half, and in the second half, what we're going to see is Jesus making his way with his disciples south 
down through Samaria, down into Judea, to Jerusalem. And that's where the cross awaits Jesus. And so the whole rest of this book is Jesus' journey to the cross and the activities in Jerusalem, which we'll get to uh, at the end of the book. So verse 33, that's, that's where they are. They're up here in Capernaum. And uh, they found this house in Capernaum, and they enter into the house, and um, <clears throat> uh, Jesus has a question for His disciples. Again, verse 33, what were you discussing on the way? So Jesus has heard a discussion, uh, an argument of some sort taking place among the uh, disciples, and we see in verse 34 that the disciples are silent. They have nothing to say. <laughs> And the reason why is because they don't really want to say what it was they were arguing about. They're, they're kind of embarrassed. They're shamed because the thing that they were arguing about, according to verse 34, is who was the greatest. I mean, it's just kind of comical just to imagine them making arguments for themselves, making arguments about how great they are. That's what was going on among these disciples. Now, one of the things that's so surprising about this is, do you remember the most recent event in the book of Mark that we just read about regarding the disciples? Do you remember that? Do you remember what they did? They tried to cast out that demon, and they couldn't do it. The most recent thing we've read about the disciples is a colossal failure. So we would expect a little humility among the disciples, but instead they're arguing about who is the greatest. It just shows us, friends, that humility does not come naturally to us. Humility is hard to cultivate, and that all of us have this tendency to think higher of ourselves than we ought and to think that we deserve better than what we have. It's just wired into our system, and the illustration I always use is this. If somebody hands you a photograph of your high school class, and you're in there, the first person you're looking for is you. Isn't that right? That's immediately where your eyes go. Find yourself, because we are wired by our sinful nature to think first and foremost about ourselves. Well, Jesus has a lesson to teach here. So, in verse 35, He <clears throat> calls them together and sits down and says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That word for servant is diaconus, the word from which we get our word deacon. Servant. So what Jesus is saying here is something that absolutely turns upside down the values and priorities of our world. Because in our world, greatness is thought to be found in the number of people who serve you. The number of people in your company, the number of citizens in your kingdom, the number of people who look to you and follow you and adore you and do what you say. That's what the world says. That's where greatness is found. And Jesus says, no, it's exactly the opposite. In the kingdom of God, greatness is found not in the number of people who serve you, but in how many people you serve. That's greatness. It's a radical idea today even, I think, but it was even more so uh, in Jesus' time, Plato, who is regarded generally as the greatest philosopher who has ever lived, aside from Jesus, but Plato said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? That was Plato. That was a common view that 
Service is something demeaning. Service is for lower people. To be great is not to serve, but to be served. But here comes Jesus, and He says, true greatness is not others making a big deal out of you. It's you making a big deal out of others. It's not you advancing yourself at the expense of others. It's you giving yourself in service to others that they might be exalted and lifted up. That's greatness. James Edwards uh, wrote this, Greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted and privileged. Rather, it presents itself to every believer in the common and simple task of serving others. Service is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. You know, there are many people who, who serve in this church. I mean, before we come here every Sunday, there are deacons here. Before any of us, they're, they're opening the doors and getting things ready for us on Sunday mornings. There are a lot of people in this congregation who, when called upon, get to work in the kitchen and make meals for others in the congregation who are sick or in a place where they cannot provide for themselves. There are people right now who are out those doors in our nursery taking care of children. We don't see them, and you probably won't see them as you leave, but they're back there, and they're serving. Uh, Yesterday, your elders spent six hours in a room reviewing church policies. Six hours. (laughs) What Jesus is saying, even though these seem like small, menial, trivial tasks, what Jesus is saying is that all the examples I just gave to you are examples of greatness. Service is the way to greatness. And so Jesus then, in verse 36, He turns to this object lesson. He takes a child into His arm, arms in, in verse 36, and He says in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me, and whoever receives Me receives not Me, but Him who sent Me. Now, Jesus taking the child in His arms, that would seem like something that anybody might be inclined to do in our culture because we live in a culture that kind of really highly values and cherishes children, but that actually wasn't the case in this particular culture. Children did not have the elevated status then that they have now. Children at that time were to be seen, not to be heard. Children were representative of the lowly and insignificant in the society. And so, Jesus picks up this child not to say, be like this child. Okay, we got to be careful. Don't misread this. He's, he does say in other places, you know, you ought to respond to the gospel like a child does. That's not the point he's making here. He's not saying be humble like a child. That's not the point. He's lifting up the child as an example of the insignificant in society and saying that when you treat the insignificant and receive them warmly, as I'm doing here by lifting up this child, you receive not just me, but the one who sent me. You receive the Father Himself, that this is something that pleases God. When you embrace, pursue, receive those who have nothing to offer you, those who are outcasts, those who are neglected, those who are forgotten, those who offer you nothing, there's no gain for you. 
to pursue, receive, and love these kinds of people. And what Jesus is saying here is this is an example of service. This is an example of true greatness, treating the lowly like you would treat anybody else without an interest to how it affects your reputation or to anything you're going to get out of it. Uh, as an example of this, <clears throat> um, Mary and I, a couple uh, weeks ago, we went down to the Fashion Mall in Indianapolis, and we, we took our dog, or our little dog Gracie, six months old. And um, we, we actually heard that at the Fashion Mall, it's a dog-friendly mall. Uh, so you can take your dog into the mall and, and walk the dog down. You can't necessarily go into all the stores, but you can go into the mall. And um, so we took Gracie down there, and, you know, it's the Fashion Mall, so... It's a place, there, there's some wealthy people there, <laughs> kind of important-looking people there. And so, you know, we're walking down the mall, and people are coming and, and approaching Gracie, and, you know, these people would come up to her, and she'd just wag her tail and move up close and want to get up close and give them a kiss on the face and, you know, just delighted everybody, and she just loved on them. And then <clears throat> there was a time later, I was kind of standing off to the the side, I was waiting for Mary, and um, this couple came down with a, a woman in a wheelchair, and it looked to me like she had something maybe like cerebral palsy, and they kind of came over, and what did Gracie do? She wagged her tail and went up to her and snuggled up and got right up and gave her a lick in the face, just like she would anybody else, and it just occurred to me that that's the way... Christians ought to be. We love, receive, and show affection to everybody, no matter what society says about the role they have in our culture. Matthew 25, 40 says this, Jesus says, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. So that's an example of personal humility. It's not just service, but it's how we treat people who have been overlooked by the rest of society. But let's move to the second thing, which is um, church humility. Church humility. It moves on, and we've got this other exchange here in verses 38 to 41 with John. Um, remember, John was one of the inner circle with James and Peter who went up onto the mountain with Jesus for the transfiguration, so he's kind of in, uh, on the in-group, right? And it seems that perhaps that went to his head, and John is a little bit puffed up in his pride because he says in verse 38, hey, Jesus, um, we saw this guy, he was casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us, because he was not one of us. Now, again, really surprising thing to hear coming out of John's mouth because here's a guy casting out a demon, but again, remember what it was that the disciples couldn't do last week. They couldn't cast out a demon. And now they see a guy who is casting out a demon, and they go and they tell him to stop. I mean, maybe there's some jealousy and some envy here. This is a guy who can do something that John and the disciples can't do, and they're a little threatened by that. You know, this guy's got some power and some ability and some skill that we don't have. We've got to put that to an end because this is about us, not about him. And so, tries to put a stop to it. And you might also notice the wording in verse 38 where John says, um, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Not following us. 
I mean, really the priority is to get people to follow Jesus, right? I mean, I think he probably ought to say, not following you, Jesus. But no, they're concerned that he's not following us, our group, as if John considers himself almost equal to Jesus and being worthy to be followed. Very surprising, given the recent failure. Again, humility does not come naturally to anybody. Well, so what does Jesus say in response? Verse 39, Jesus says, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to, to speak evil of, of me. Jesus is just saying that this guy is, is doing, casting out this, this demon by, the, by my power, and anybody who's doing that is not going to speak against me. He's not going to be our enemy. Basically, he's saying this is a friend, not an enemy. You, you don't need to, to stop him. You don't need me to feel threatened by him. You see, John has developed, apparently, kind of an elitist mentality, an us-versus-them mentality, a cliquish mentality. You know how cliques work, right? You kind of get into a group, and you feel exalted and proud about this group that you're in, and you kind of look down on everybody who's not in the group. That seems to be the way John is thinking. A good thing has happened. A demon got cast out, and John's not so sure about it. We better stop it. It's not, it's not happening in our circle. Let's shut this thing down. Now, friends, I, I just think this happens a lot in the church, actually. Sometimes we feel a little bit threatened when God does things in other places that He's not doing among us. Sometimes you get into certain denominations, and we think that we're the ones that do it all right, and God really should only work in us. Honestly, it happens a lot in Reformed congregations. We tend to have a kind of a suspicion about what God might be doing in other traditions and denominations. And so Brandon already mentioned it, the Asbury Revival, they're calling it. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's a pretty interesting story. Um, two Wednesdays ago at Asbury School in Kentucky, the students got together for um, their chapel service two Wednesdays ago, and as far as I know, they haven't even left to this day. <laughs> they just they didn't left. They said they were overcome by a sense of transcendence, and they just stayed there that night, that day, and I think through that night. And so for these last 12 or so, 13 days, this in the picture is what's been going on. <laughs> and some people are calling it a, a revival. Now, Asbury is Methodist. They're not one of us. <laughs> They're not Presbyterian. They're not Reformed. They're not Calvinist, as far as I know. So, what do we do with that? Well, I want to suggest that in the spirit of this text that we should avoid cynicism, we ought to be hopeful that this indeed is a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. That should be our desire. And it takes humility to adopt that kind of an attitude, right? I mean, yes, be discerning. 1 John 4 says, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see if they're from God. 1 John 4. I'm not discounting that. Yes, we, we need to do that. But friends, I just want to ask you, are you okay if God does a great work of revival somewhere other than among us? 
If God does a great work of revival up at the compass, up the street, or at Common Way, or at the Oaks, or at Union Chapel, or Yorktown Methodist, God does what He wants. He can break out a revival anytime, place He wants. He's not obligated to do it among us. And if it's a real work of the Lord, we ought to be happy about that, not to rejoice in that. That's church humility. That's what John seems to be lacking here. Jesus says, don't, don't stop him. Uh, he is not against us. This is a good thing. So we go on to one last thing, and that is gospel humility. Gospel humility. So we're going to back up to verses 30 to 32, where once again we get this prediction of Jesus about His coming death. This, this verse here is almost the same as what we read in chapter 8, verse 31, and we're going to see it again in chapter 10, verse 33. So, chapters 8, 9, 10, we have this repetition of Jesus' prediction that He is going to die. Now, um, a, a key lesson in what we call hermeneutics, that is, interpreting the Bible, a key lesson is that when something is repeated, it is important, and we should pay close attention to that. And so here, this is repeated. It's here again. This must be a big deal to Mark as he's writing the gospel because he's bringing it up so often. Jesus' prediction of his death. Now, notice again the contrast here. It's just so interesting to compare these verses, 30 to 32, with the two episodes that I just talked about because in the two other episodes, it's like the disciples are all concerned about themselves, but here we have Jesus who is only concerned about others. And here we have the, the disciples wanting to fulfill their lives, and here we have Jesus wanting to give His life. And here we have the, the disciples who are looking to be served, and here we have Jesus who just simply wants to serve. We have disciples exalting themselves, and we have Jesus humbling Himself in the greatest act of humility ever displayed in the history of the world, and that is in Jesus' willingness to go voluntarily to the cross to give up His life for prideful, self-righteous, ego-driven people like you and like me. It's the greatest display of humility ever, and it's exactly what Paul says here in Philippians. Have, Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form God, form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The disciples, they don't know what to do with this, right? Verse 32, we've seen their confusion about this kind of thing before, but verse 32 says they didn't even understand what he was saying. I mean, I'm sure literally they understood that when he said he was going to die, that somehow he was going to die, but they didn't understand the significance of it. They didn't understand the meaning of it. They didn't have a category for it because they're expecting a Messiah of glory to come in fulfillment of like Daniel 7 when the Ancient of Days comes. But they didn't have a category for a Messiah of suffering like Isaiah 53 says. They hadn't considered that. And so they, they, they don't have a place to put this. And so they, they don't 
they don't get him. Have you seen those ads on TV? They were a couple during the Super Bowl where you have these pictures of all this conflict going on, and then it says something about Jesus, and it says He gets us. Have you seen that? It's like an ad campaign. It's been going on for a while. He gets us. Well, it's a good thing He gets us because often we don't get Him. And the disciples, they're not, they're not getting Him. And even today, there are a lot of people who don't get Him, don't understand Him, and might have the same question. Why does Jesus have to die? Why does He have to do this? I'm a pretty good person. Why would my life require a death like this? And why can't God just, why can't He just forgive and forget? I mean, people do that all the time. Why can't He just do that? Or what some people say is, look, I'm, I'm happy without Jesus. I mean, i got a job. I have three meals a day. I've got my smartphone and YouTube. And, I mean, I've got everything I need. I'm, I'm happy. I don't need this Jesus to die for me. That's the way some people might be thinking. Friends, let me just respond to that by saying this. If the main purpose in your life is to be happy, yeah, you probably don't need Jesus. You probably can be happy to some degree without Jesus. But what if that's not the main purpose of your life? The main purpose, friends, of your life, the main objective in life is not to be happy. It's to be reconciled to your Creator. It's to know your Creator through faith. It's to have the wrath of God removed from you. It is to be declared not guilty before His law. It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what you're here for. That's what life is about. And the only way that that can happen is if the Messiah, Jesus, goes to a cross and dies and gives up His life to pay the penalty for our sins and to be raised again to conquer our sin and death and the devil. There's only one way. Jesus has to do it this way. And the question is whether you are humble enough to receive that and believe on His name. We're about to come to the Lord's table here. And uh, we're going to reflect more on this central focus of the Christian faith, repeated three times in Mark. It must be important that Jesus must go and die. So, uh, Pastor Brian will come up here in a moment, and we'll reflect more on all that our Savior has done for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for um, teaching us about humility through Your Word. We acknowledge, Lord, that very often we are prideful people, self-centered people, that we want to be served more than we want to serve. We acknowledge it, but we thank You that in Your death on the cross there is more than enough to cover that sin and forgive us and redeem us. We're grateful for that. Um, help us to be humble in Your presence and toward others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.